This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 114th episode of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, the final minute of this heist that feels like it's been going on for a decade, um, but in fact has been going on for about, it's, it's really only about eight minutes long, sort of top and tail, few little uh, intros and things like that, setting up context. I have... One of the great Michael Mann aficionados uh, on with me today. I'm just going to do a, a more florid intro than perhaps I normally do. Firstly, this man is a writer. He's a screenwriter, a comic book writer, now a television writer. Um, he's known for, firstly, let's start with his comic books. Comic books like Postal, which is about a convict sanctuary. Um, really diving into themes of morality, American Carnage about a biracial infiltration of a white militia and sort of struggle with senses of self. Um, he's one of the authors of the Killmonger uh, short run, uh, sort of a special run that Marvel's put together, um, and it's about the choices and failures that lead people to a life of vengeance. Um, he's rabid about anything Batman, which as anyone who's listened to this show knows that I'm very obsessed, which is even more important for a comic book writer who is eventually going to be writing about Batman and the Outsiders, who is now writing for Titans, who if you're in Oz, you'd see this on Netflix, but on DC, uh, a DC streaming platform if you're in the States. This guy also has an innate love I can feel in watching and reading his stuff of my favorite comic book run of all time, which is The New Adventures of Batman and Robin, which sees Dick Grayson, the lead of Titans, inherit the mantle, which is, let's go on a quick Batman digression before we get started. But one thing that you, the only thing now that you need to know is he's an obsessive of Michael Mann and particularly of Miami Vice, is intimately familiar with Heat, is so familiar with it that he talks about Michael Mann being one of his seminal artists and influences and he talks about how much even on his um, uh, uh, in his comics his affinity for Michael Mann's characters to reconcile their personal ethics with a compromised world ladies and gentlemen it is an absolute pleasure for One Heat Minute to have Brian Edward Hill on the show Brian thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute thank you for having me this is fantastic I'm, I'm sitting here in my home office. I got a nice city view from my home office. So I'm having a Michael Mann moment right now. So we are, and it's raining in LA. So it's like a little moody, you know, you can, you can sort of hear like the Lisa Gerard dead can dance on the soundtrack. If you were to play it, like I'm, I'm right in the middle. of it. And w- look, we're at a great minute, which is, you know, uh, Michael Mann talks about one of his top 10 films of all time being the wild bunch. And I think, Anthony Morris, I had the great Aussie filmmaker Anthony Morris on the show, and his concept of heat was always 
that it was Michael Mann's sort of uh, uh, Michael Mann's sort of industrial and and uh, contemporary and also sort of city and urban version of the Wild Bunch, um, and this is kind of Heat's Wild Bunch moment. So. Without further ado, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let Brian dive into anything just yet. We're just gonna watch this great minute where we see Michael Torito, Tom Sizemore's character, snatch up a poor innocent little girl to use her as a human shield. And as the cop forces converge, this beautiful subjective slow motion moment that punctuates this insane heist that we've been just sort of going over and, and running through. So Brian and I are gonna watch it and listen along right now. You guys are gonna listen along, and then we're gonna come back and talk about it. Tragedy in a Southland neighborhood today. A bank robbery spilled. Brian. Yes. Yes. Talk to me. Talk to me about that beautiful little death touch of subjectivity. Pacino's breath slowing down. And such a cool thing that I know you'd be familiar with being a fan of Michael Mann and just in movies and genre in general. So many slow motion moments that are sort of characterizes the big moments are about sl- slowing down death scenes of important characters, whether it's at the culmination of the movie, like Arthur Penn and Sam Peckinpah with Bonnie and Clyde and Wild Bunch as an example, or even in like Scorsese's um, uh, 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 Gangs of New York with Liam Neeson's mm. character being, you know, right at the very beginning, you kind of know that this seminal death moment is going to sort of come back, come back around. But what's so cool about this moment is that none of the slow motion gives any more, you know, uh, ceremony or, or any more uh, elevation to Tom Sizemore character. It is all about the preparation and slowing down time to make sure that you can get the shot that you need to just end this. And uh, it's that sort of lovely mix of like ceremony for the shot and complete you know, completely dismissing him in this moment that is, I think, just like so characteristic of everything that man's done all the way up until this moment in the movie. Mm. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that moment, right? Uh, you know, I think, it, first, it's really interesting to me that Hannah takes the shot because you're not supposed to take that shot. Yes. Right, like I, I, I know people <laughs> who are in law enforcement and yeah. they would never, never. take that shot, never. you know? You've got this, uh, I think the weapon that Hannah's carrying, I don't know the make and model, but I, I think it, it goes in the full auto mode and he, and he seems to have it clicked down to single shot fire, right? But it doesn't, mean, it doesn't make it especially accurate. And when you're aiming at someone who's holding a child, then there's something a little wrong with you, right? And <laughs> um, there's, a, there's an aspect to Hannah's character where 
it's almost like Hannah, he says it, you know, like, I'm only what I'm going after. So, you know, he kind of sleeps through L.A. a little bit. Like, he's, he's kind of in, like, a little bit of a numbness until he's hunting something, right? And then he wakes up. Yes. And then he's fully present. You know, if you, if you look at uh, Hannah throughout the movie, he's never really in scenes with people. He's in his head. He's thinking about the next move. You know, he's playing chess with the world. And he's with you enough to answer your question, but you know, like, some of them is always reserved, right? You search for the center of your prey and then you hunt them down, you know? Yes. Um, that whole Diane Menorah moment. So you could, so the, for me, the, the closing down, the slow motion, demonstrates how completely committed Hannah is in this moment. You know, and then, you know, you get the gunshot and the exhale, right? Like, yeah, like he did that. You know, and it speaks to his character, you know, to his nature, because, um, you know, I mean, the, 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 the long, long tooth discussion about heat is all about how the cops and the robbers, they're not that different. You know, they're sort of the same. They just have different goals. Um, but it demonstrates uh, in that scene that Hannah is kind of more interested in hunting than safety, than protocol. <laughs> um and, and there's, there's also sort of a symbolic value to it because Cerrito in the story was seemingly the guy who had figured it out. You know, he was a, he was a professional thief, but he had a family, you know, he had a loving wife, mm-hmm. he, you know, he has loving children. He was the character who didn't really seem to have marital problems, relationship problems. Everyone else is a mess. Christian Harris is a mess. You know, Vincent Hanna's a mess. And, and Neil um, continuously reassures him that this is, he should never have been in this house to begin with. Elaine looks after you, you got meat, you know, steak in the freezer, you got your investments. I think it's a bad mm-hmm. play for you to even be here. And then you get, you know, him sort of emphatically going back, you know, the, the iconic line, you know, the action is right. the juice. The but, action is the juice, right? And when, when Cerrito was killed, it kind of marks the death of all dreams, I think, in the film, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> like, after, it, it really that, does. It really does. Everybody's dream so just starts falling apart, right? Yes. <laughs> like, whatever construction you have, whatever delusion you're living in, they all just kind of start crumbling down uh, under the weight of, of reality. So I think, I think it also serves uh, a purpose for the story to, to make it a real inflection point for the audience where man's telling you like, okay, now things are going to change, right? Now we're going to get out of, uh, all of the, the, well, the fragility of people's illusions is all about to be revealed. And you're going to watch a cascading series of crumbling dreams. Um, and so in a lot of ways, the Cerrito is sort of like the sacrificial lamb of professional delusion. Um, and I think that also, uh, uh, is present. I, there's also a the, filmmaking the, technique. Oh, oh, but, I was just going to say the editing. I think you 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 might just be about to touch on. It, and so sorry if, if I've uh, if I've jumped on it, but it's you're so right about there's an immediacy in the echo between the reality of his situation and the consequences externally in this web of people that we've been establishing for now almost two hours in this movie, which Mm -hmm. you get to immediately see Elaine. Like she's the punctuation point actually on the minute. The minute ends with her face doing something at home and starting to hear about gang gangland violence down in, you know, in downtown LA. And so the newscaster prepping the story. So it's really like the echo is, Vincent takes down Torito 
immediately goes in and looks to, um, um, I think Michael Mann calls it in the commentary, is like understanding the trauma and getting that little girl out of there. That's a great like little insight into his character as well, where he's alive sure. in the moment in the movie. Um, but then bang, straight to Elaine and, and you going, oh, okay, now, now, now shit's really real because everything mm-hmm. that's going on with these guys... It's, it's not just the convention. It's not just, oh, don't ask him where he got it. It's like, oh, no, these guys die now. And and the whole city is a buzz trying to get them. Well, yeah. I mean, when you know, when Hannah comes in there and scoops up the girl, you, you, you know, you have a series of actions of a character that's clearly at home in crisis. Yes. Right? Like, that's, that's his thing. Um, and it's in contrast to how he doesn't really know how to eat fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> He's like picking up the drumstick and I don't know how to eat this. He does know how to pour the shit out of a Jack Daniels, but he does not know how to eat chicken. He doesn't really know how to eat chicken, right? Like he's a guy that doesn't really understand what normal people do. But 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 he can but he can plant the butt of a gun on his shoulder and slow down his breathing in such a like in, in a hypnotic way. And, but yeah, like he, he doesn't, he picks it up with two fingers. It's like, come on, man. Who's ever picked yeah, like, up a chicken leg with two fingers? So, yeah. It's just so strange to him. Like the, <laughs> the, you know, just how we live. And you find that in a lot of people who are trained and experienced in how to deal with crises. It's hard to be bifurcated like that, to have yes. that dualism of, well, I know what to do when the building's on fire. And I'm always thinking about what I would do if the building was on fire but I don't really know what to do when there's never a fire, right? I, I you know, a, a man like Hannah never lives in consensus reality. He's always living in his own extremity. And then sometimes extremity makes its way into consensus reality. And then he goes active. Yes. So it's fascinating to see how but he's, he's moving. Co- Brian, do you think he's cogn- cognizant of that? Because there's that great scene. No. There's a great scene where he's there with, um, with Rachel uh, at the death of the black prostitute in the sort of in the Wango subplot, and he's there mm-hmm. and he sees the prostitute's mother um, attempting to be wrangled by the uniformed police officers at the scene, and he's like, "Oh, who let her here?" And I, right. I, 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 I think about that. I just thought about that scene as you were talking because I was thinking, "Here's a guy who almost can't. If there's no impulse control on when he's completely on and open." Um, mm-hmm. or when he's not. Like, he wants to, in that moment, he doesn't want to have to deal with the emotion. He's more calculating. He just wants to hear the words. He wants to be inside his own head. And sometimes those, like, bringing him back to reality moments. Here, he has to do it. Like, it's his instinct to do it. He's already in that heightened state. But in that moment, I think it, it, it goes to your point of going, this is a guy who doesn't, you know, he's coming to this scene because he just wants to be, you know, have a whole bunch of information injected into his brain. He wants to rattle it around and then see what he can figure out and start his own internal workings. But having an external person out there going, oh, well, you know, this is, this is a good idea or a bad idea or, 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 or I want to know more or adding that emotional realm to it doesn't seem to fit with him in that moment. But he just then he then has to open up, right? He just like lets himself go. He doesn't really seem to have that control. Yeah, well, you, you know, there was an earlier draft of the script uh, I believe, where we saw Hannah use cocaine. Yes, there was. And, then, and it was and even shot. It was even it shot. Was shot. Okay, so they, they, they went ahead and they shot it, right? Um, and I think it was wise to cut it out of the film because rather than have it be like a chemically induced kind of state, it speaks more to like Hannah's psychology, you know? And, and, 
and maybe you could infer it from from the uh, the theatrical edit if you wanted to. But yeah, I think look when, when you do those kinds of jobs, you know, because I got friends that are EMTs, I got friends that are cops, I got yeah, friends I got, that I got are a military. really good, really good friend myself who's actually been on the show. What we weren't allowed to say his name, um, but is a detective for the Australian Federal Police in Organized Crime Division. So it's like I know yeah. I know some friends like this. Yeah. When, when you when you do that, you're going to walk into some rooms and you're going to see some horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. You're going to turn a corner and you're going to see some horrible stuff. And you can't let those people be people. No. You know, you can't think about that that's somebody's daughter, somebody's son, father, you know, sister, mother, whatever, because you have to, you know, collect the evidence. You can't disturb the scene. You've got to get past the horror of it and get into it. And if you train yourself to do that, uh, it becomes intrusive when empathy is, is required because empathy is like ink. You know, if you put empathy in clear water, you're just going to have a glass of dark water. Yes. Right? You can't, <laughs> yes. you can't corral empathy. You know, that's why you know when you're when you deal with people who seem to be cold and removed or even sociopathic but aren't, and you can just crack the daylight in a little bit, the change, the reverberation of change happens within them because once you open the empathy door, it just kind of spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. Right. So, you know, Hannah in that moment. Um, you know, he recognizes pain and then has to deal with pain the best way he knows how to do. Um, and then when you, you know, you go back to the, uh, the Cerrito, the shooting, you know, he's just moving kind of via instinct, via instinct, via instinct. This girl is going to pull her out. Um, and it just speaks to the psychological rigors that one has to put oneself through in order to do that kind of thing, you know, to yeah. run at the bullets and not away from the bullets, right? Because our instinct is to run away from the bullets. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, and I, you and I are the people crowding down at that cafe outside. <laughs> like, let's be really clear. We're oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. We're, 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 yeah, like that. that anyway. That, 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 um, it, it goes against all of the, and I think in this movie, um, it does the sound design of this movie and actually making you feel the um, that it's almost like I want to say like a kinesthetic like a, you can touch it experience learning experience of being in that zone but it's not really it's sort of still quite detached but that immersive experience of hearing those sounds almost has the same reaction of like you hear an animal roar or something like in real life. It's like, if you would oh, do that, yeah, yeah. you just want to cower. Like you don't want to run towards it. You want to cower and run away or be, you know, be protected. Um, well, I think that's why Macaulay, uh, cause I don't, I don't think Macaulay brings, you know, that kind of hardware to the bank job explicitly believing he's going to have to use it. No, I no. think, you know, he's prepared to use it obviously, but it's really a, a, a pacification device. Like if you see someone with a gun that's half as big as you are, you're probably going to do what they say, right? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, like it's a scary, it's a scary thing. Like, it's really not, scary. When the AR 15 is getting bandied about, you're probably going to do what they say. So, you know, they do have this dramatic impact and, you know, I've been in a firing range. I mean, the first time I went to a firing range, I was just sort of stuck at the edge of the door from the concussive sound of these firearms going off. Yes. Um, and it takes a bit to like get your get yourself over it, you know. And and there's another little bit of filmmaking. Uh, I believe there is a a lens switch on the the shots of Hannah yes. between the gunshot and afterwards. I think uh, it it's, it goes from either wide angle to telephoto. I believe that's the move. Yes. So 
Hannah remains compositionally the same size in the frame, but the background mosaics between some edits. Yes. And what a wide-angle lens does is it, it puts you inside the breadth of the space, right? So a wide-angle lens is a wider view. It has a much greater depth of field, right? And the depth of field is the space in which things in front of the lens are in focus. So a wide-angle lens keeps a lot of things in focus, so it makes whatever's in front of it all feel like they're sort of part of the same tapestry. Yes. A telephoto lens has a much shallower depth of field, meaning that, and this is for people who don't, you know, who aren't photographers, meaning that what is in front of the camera, there's a very small little kind of space, little distance where things are in focus. And anything that's in front of that distance is going to be out of focus. Anything behind that distance is going to also be out of focus. And it goes into a blur. And the effect of a telephoto lens on the subject is the subject is clear, sharp, and separated from the background. Uh, and it's a very intentional choice. Because um, it's not an... It's not an easy thing to do because you have to shoot someone, you know, with one lens and then you have to make sure you understand what their compositional size is within the frame. Now you have to switch lenses, switch cameras, and they're shooting 35. So you have a gigantic camera. They have to that <laughs> yes. So they're moving in a new camera and now uh, a telephoto lens, it has sort of like a zoom in quality where it's going to bring objects closer to you. So now you have to move that camera back in order to maintain Hannah's size in the composition. So it's, it's a very technical move that could add hours to a day of shooting, really for just the effect of having Hannah be, you know, kind of part of the world, you know, you know kind of among the background to being... Uh, being, completely in his own right. yeah, can, being completely in his own head, I guess, is the only thing from a... When you're looking at the formal standpoint, is like you, the rest of the world is a blur, and he's in crisp, crystalline focus, like right there in your eyes as, the in the I, switch. I, you know, my admiration of man comes from a lot of directions. But, uh, you know, one of the, the most, like, kind of prominent things about his process that I really appreciate is he will go through extraordinary means for very small effect moments. Yes. Right? Like, not to get off track, not to get off the heat track, but there's a moment in The Insider where Russell Crowe's character, Jeffrey Wigand, uh, opens up his mailbox and there's a bullet in his mailbox mm -hmm. left for him by people that want to intimidate him out of talking about the cigarette industry. And the camera shoots from inside the mailbox past the bullet and you see Jeffrey Wigand's face. Yes. Cool shot. Interesting very, shot. Very cool right? shot. He did that by setting up a mailbox on a pier. Yeah. Putting the camera behind <laughs> yeah. the pier because apparently he needed that light or... He needed the background to be a certain way, and and in film terms. And there's for, a great for shot for any for anyone who who owns. There's a a beautiful book by Tashen that brought out with um, Michael Mann, and there's actually a still from behind the scenes that is exactly what you're talking about. I know the shot intimately, know the film. It's just nuts. It's nuts. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's that that, that book is on my coffee table right now <laughs> in my apartment. Right, like that's how deep I go. Like I, I have I have the the BS the the, the British Film Council. Uh, the little, the little like kind of thin essay writing yeah, thing by so, written by Nick James, a guest on this Nick very James. podcast. Yep, yep. I got the Nick James thing. I watched the the um, Matthew Solarzite Zen Pulp, you know, the video documentary he had on Michael Mann on a while ago. So, so yeah, he goes with these extraordinary means to to get these images. Um, 
uh, for the, the small emotional impact in the moment, but small moments add up to larger moments, right? Small moments in succession will add up to the whole of the experience. I think, so, I think you're so right in that movie, particularly The Insider, um, so much of the mounting pressure of this external force, which we know is this sort of, you know, all-encompassing sort of corporate evil, if you like, this weird thing that he's also, you know, using a lot of the, the that great sort of paranoia cinema, new Hollywood energy. Um, so much of it is about that, those shots that if you don't, if you if you're just watching it kind of passively, they glance past you. But if you really analyze it, they just they're just like huge moments. They're just seismic, you know. And that bullet in the mailbox. Like that gives me chills when you say it. You know, that's just such a such a shot and so so iconic. Such a, an well, amazing. Well, you know, there's 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 always purpose behind man's style. You know, and so some people complain about Heat because, well, it's a very long movie to just be a movie about bank robbers and cops. <laughs> and you know, why are there so many scenes of this and so many scenes of that? Um, but the effect of all of that isn't just his you know filmmaking indulgences. It cr- continually creates paradigms, situations where violence doesn't really beget a winner, right? Like we don't feel great about the violence and heat, even though it's, it's a stylish film and a very cool film. One of the coolest films, I think, you know, of the past like 70 years, it doesn't make violence cool. No. So when Hannah shoots Cerrito, you don't feel great about it. You don't, obviously you don't want a child to get hurt and you understand why one would put Cerrito down. Like I get it. But because you spent some time with this guy, because you don't hate this guy, no. because man goes through great effort to show you vis-a-vis Wangro, here are people with a code and here's someone without a code, right? Yeah. Here is the separation, right? And that happens early on in the narrative. So you've already placed some value inside of uh, Macaulay and his crew. But at the same time, you know that they have to be stopped because they will kill people. They're yeah. shooting at police, you know. Uh, they're killing some uniformed police, one could imagine, uh, outside the bank robbery. So, you know, you have the situation where, like, and from a macro point of view, one of the bad guys is killed by the good guy. But to man's credit, that's not how it feels at all. You know, it... it, it I think it's accurate to the emotional uh, cost of violence, you know, and why, why violence really isn't a great solution to anything because there's, there's something left. There's something cold left uh, in its wake. And that's what I, I really appreciate about that, that scene the most. You know, it's, it's, it's most disturbing to me when I watch something and it, it, if, if something is hyperbolic, I don't care, right? If it's like the Fast and Furious, totally cool. Yes. Because that's a cartoon, and I read it as such. <laughs> yes. But when, but when something wears, like, the robe of verisimilitude, but then also sort of gins you up in this, in, with this feeling of, like, the violence is really cool sometimes when you have to do it, that bothers me. Because it's not really true, but, you know, he always remains true uh, within its style. You know, and like that, you know, like, real turns around. He knows. He knows instantly this guy's going to take this shot. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he just knows this is the guy. And it, it only ta- it takes a down. fraction of a second and he turns around and you can almost, it's like a breath and he's mm-hmm. just bang, he's down. He, kn- he knows he's dead. He knows he's dead when he turns that corner. 
You and, know, that, and, and, I, and you stare into his eyes, basically, even through the glasses. You can see in his face that he, he has that, that moment. This, this scene is littered with death masks, and this is almost one of them in, just a, in that flash of realisation that here it comes. I had a, I had a, I had a great question along the pod, throughout the podcast about gun violence and heat, and was talking about with a, an Australian film critic called Stephen Russell. And Stephen was asking me, you know, do you think that heat in any way, like, because it is so effortlessly cool, does it glorify that gun violence? I think you and I have kind of touched on it, and I just want to sort of, I think it's a great moment to sort of close it out is, I have, there is no, not, um, there are not many movies that I can think of with the, that have the same impact as heat on me, just in general, but that have the same impact of guns. The guns and heat terrify me. And it, right. I, that is so extremely rare for a cops and robbers movie because a lot of it is that cool thing. I want him to draw first. I want him to take this person down. There's all those archetypal, you know, tropes that we can just sort of wear in those cartoony versions of of this of this genre, this or cartoony impressions of the genre. But it's like in Heat, there's no moment that any of the guns don't scare you. Like right. they, sh- they should scare you, and you and you and you're fearful of them. But none of that is to do with the cool of the the, the script. It's the gun, the violence is all the real and the tangible and the and the bone rattling, and especially you know the fallout of this very heist. You know, seeing in so many other movies, you see someone get clipped with a bullet and they just walk away like oh, just brush it off like it's a piece of dust on their shoulder. But like Val Kilmer sure. is seriously messed up <laughs> he's oh yeah you can die from uh like, uh, there's, a, uh, there's an arterial cluster like around where uh hairless is shot and if you get shot there you can easily bleed out you know because yes. you're just you're just you're bleeding too much and then you've got bone fragments and all types of things that can go down I, you know heat was the first time in a film that i saw a scene that taught me that military weapons in a civilian environment that's generally a bad idea. Oh yes, right. Like it, it you did, and he makes it. It's clearly distinguished, right? You see it in the sequence itself, kind of like going going previous to our minute. You know, when you see police officers with nine millimeter Beretta standard <laughs> issues, maybe a couple like blocks or something they're using, and and it's like they're throwing pebbles at these guys, <laughs> and those those like AR 15s M16s, whatever they're brandishing is punching flower petal holes inside of squad cars. <laughs> yes. And you're like, well, there, you know, it's funny. There was a, um, years uh, after the movie, uh, in Los Angeles, there was, I believe, a bank heist where, I believe it was L.A., uh, and you can look it up, where two guys decked out in head-to-toe body armor, like Hurt Locker-style yes. impact armor, like juggernaut armor, I guess is the, is the name for it. Uh, and they robbed some kind of bank. And there was like a three-hour, four-hour standoff with these guys, them just punching holes through cars and buildings and windows. And there wasn't very much that the police could do about it until they could bring some heavy artillery to it. Yes. Um, and it was hard to watch that and not think of heat. And I didn't think that, like, well, heat let them to do this. It's just where heat begins to me a conversation about what level of hardware do we need inside of our cities? And we need to be cognizant of this, you know, and I'm not necessarily preaching gun control or, or any of that. What I am saying is we need to be honest about what these weapons can do, right? Like 
Absolutely. You know, there you're is not a... going to hunt a deer with an M16 unless you don't want to eat anything afterwards. <laughs> yeah. If you shoot, if, 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 if Chris Shahalis was not shooting at a cop car and was shooting at a deer, the deer would be missed. It just, <laughs> there would be yeah, no I meat mean, left. There wouldn't be meat yeah, left. There would be nothing. There would be nothing. And these, and these bullets are huge. I mean, if you've ever held like a, a 5.56 millimeter round in your hand, or a 7.62 millimeter round in your hand. They're like pencils and pens, man. Yeah. Like, these are large rounds. Yes. You know? And if you think about something that large, that isn't especially sharp, that's going to go through you that fast, it's going to take parts out of you. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> like you're, yes. You're not, you're not going to be the same. You know, it's, you're, you're, it's that whole, like, yeah, you know, diehard thing, like, ooh, it's a flesh wound. I'm all right. Let me just tie this napkin around my thigh i'm good no that's no that's not how no, my friend no the cars i think I've, I've i've described a few times as like they're just metallic swiss cheese by the end of this scene really they they just and and especially you get that like sort of lyrical two to second or three second beat where you just see the smoke and the plastic hanging and they're just seared everything um and you're going oh my god these go- Talk about completely outmatched. Completely yeah, I mean, outmatched. It's like that, the cliched scene you always see in an action film where, you know, the hero is talking to the witness in the apartment and then the killers kick down the door and then the hero flips the couch and the couch stops <laughs> like a spray of bullets. And it's like, I don't know what couch that is, but I know it's... my couch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything from Ikea that can stop a bullet. I just want to let everyone know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have anything from the Ikea Kevlar collection <laughs> because that little black reclining couch I have in my living room wouldn't stop anything. Oh, God. Right? Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah. So, no, I don't think that he glorifies uh, uh, guns. I think it just presents them in a realistic context, and part of that creates a sense of awe in the viewer. Part of that creates a sense of horror, maybe a little bit of a fascination. Those were all natural responses to that, but I certainly don't think the film itself glorifies gun violence. No, no, uh, de- definitely not. I, I and I, I think that that's what um, you know when when you were talking about it right at the beginning. I think there's a couple of movies you think about, like the cartoony. It's like Desperado. There's nothing sexier than Antonio Banderas flying through the totally. air shooting two guns. It's cartoony. It's it's glorious. But then there's something kind of sick. Uh, and I think of like Rambo four where you take a guy into a sort of, you know, a, 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 a Southeast Asian country, like ripping out people's throats and exploding people. And it's just like, this is, it, it kind of immediately sidesteps into this is gross. Like it's just gross. It's a little dark. It's, it's, it's yeah. And, and Rambo four was a well-intentioned film. Yes. Um, yes. And from what I understand, it was actually instrumental in changing a little bit of the landscape of Burma. So, you know, props to Sylvester Stallone for, for, for drawing attention to that. But yeah, it, in, in its savagery, it, there's a little sadism in it yes. that um, I think lands a little weird. And, and part of that is, you know, my 15-second side sojourn on Rambo. The original First Blood was a, was a tragic drama about a, about a man who was wounded psychologically trying to find his way in the world. Yes. Then it became a jingoistic... Uh, super soldier franchise. And then when Stallone returned to Rambo with Rambo four, I think he was trying to split the difference between the two. Yes. And it's hard. Like once something goes cartoon, it's really hard to pull it back in the verisimilitude. And I think that was 
likely a struggle of those two forces being kind of in opposition. And it feels like um, his, fi- his final swan song that he's doing with Rambo is like really trying to like take it back another step. Like I've gone, I've split the difference with Rambo four, and now I'm taking it even further back because yeah, he's you're on right, a horse or something like I, I, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Like, I saw he was like riding a horse with a cowboy hat, and I'm like, okay, all, all right, right Ram- maybe, all right, Rambo, sure. whatever, man. Well, yeah. let's go with it. <laughs> but yeah, that, yeah, no, that looks worth my twenty bucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it in the last few episodes, but I have mentioned it often in the series. Is um, there's a great if you if you're interested in a critical study, there's an author called Susan Jeffords who talks. She uses the phrase the remasculinization of America, and mm. and and her primary case study. She's like masculinity. You know, you only need two films um, to see the difference right at the outset, and she she obviously studies many more. But her her, her primary examples are First Blood. And First Blood right. Part Two. She's like, you go to First Blood, and this is a psychologically deep, um, you know, phenomenal character study on an individual who's, you know, who's essentially suffering PTSD, shell shock, coming back home sure. and being abused by sort of forces who are ignorant, um, and how that and how that even further sort of um, compromises his his outlook on the world. And then the second one is a pure Vietnam revenge movie. <laughs> like it's just right. like it's it's the the poles between those two movies. Not even to Rambo three, which is another level um, uh, on top of that. But it's like those. I mean, two... the one where Rambo works with the Taliban. <laughs> yeah, the one that no one talks about. <laughs> there, there are two films that people don't analyze enough. One is Rambo three because Rambo works with the Taliban. The other is is uh, the Living Daylights, where James Bond works with, with the Mujahideen. Oh my god. <laughs> They are they are products of the eighties. Our fear of the Soviets was so deep that <laughs> yeah, we were so scared. Those we were almost CIA propaganda, right? Oh like it's God. it's remarkable. Um, but yeah, like going back to Heat, I think um, you know it's uh, because because the film does a lot to place its story within a real context. You know, when the guns do come, they come they come loud. You know, I mean, it's no mistake, obviously, that the the soundtrack, the um, uh, that kind of percussive uh, sound bed drops out uh, right at the end of it, and then it's all the percussion of the weapons, yes. right? Uh, and you know, you drop it to—it's like music. You drop it down to silence, and then you punctuate it with something really loud. It's—it's it's really shocking and has the effect I think it should. Now you're also—we started before we even hit record on this. You know, we talked about this little Michael Mann corner of the internet of one heat minute, and we talked about your obsession with Miami Vice and us sort of, sort of cordoning mm. off areas. Miami Vice, I think it would be remiss of me, anyone who is a fan of you and a follower of you on Twitter, uh, it would be remiss of me not to talk Miami Vice with you. And we haven't yet gone down a tangent of Miami Vice, but we talked briefly about Mann's style. And I think this is one of Mann's last classical classically narrative structured films and i think that one yes. thing that he does almost better than any director is you you often hear people say that phrase and i think you mentioned it earlier like that style over substance mm. i think miami vice is the pinnacle of an expression of style that is integral to the storytelling like the the, oh, the, yeah. the, the style is and that expression is 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 one and the same of the story that's trying to be told I mean, you can see the influences of Godard in it, right? You yes. can see, like, the Truffaut, you know, yes. you can see Le Samurai, you can see Breathless. Yes. Kind of in the movie, and in the nature of its editing, and the, 
and the use of the high-definition camera. You know, another aspect of Man that I really appreciate is how he'll continue to remake a story until he gets it the way he wants. Yes. And so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about L.A. Takedown and Heat and, you know, and, and comparing those two experiences is really interesting because you, you see, like, how he refined his style, refined his writing, refined his characterization, and kind of perfected the art of telling that narrative. Well, in the case of Miami Vice, I believe it is the ninth episode of Robbery Homicide Division, the uh, Tom Sizemore show that was post-seat. There's one season of a Michael Mann-produced show on CBS. Um, Clea Duvall was in it, Tom Sizemore. I don't remember everyone else, but the ninth episode, the plot of that episode is basically the plot of Miami Vice. Yes. You know, yes. it's, it's about Sizemore's character going undercover and falling in love, you know, with a, with, with a woman, an, an Asian woman that was part of the, you know, the thing. Um, so and, and I can briefly, I won't spoil the episode, but I will say that um, that theme of getting something right, in a later episode, I talk again to Sean Burns, um, a, Boston, a Bostonian critic and man obsessive, who pointed out that the great upcoming Ralph scene... Um, with the television mm-hmm. set, was something that was done originally in Crime Story with Dennis oh, Farina. I love that. I love, you know, it, it's like music, right? It's like a musician that, that loves a chord progression or yes. something. And they keep kind of working with it and funny. And let me just say, the fact that I was talking about an episode of Robbery Homicide Division and I didn't lose you makes me love you like <laughs> I was going to say, no, love Robbery, like, Robbery Homicide Division. Also, y- you can't get it you can't buy it on DVD or Blu-ray. Like, it's, no, it's, it's, I you, have you, like some weird bootleg things. You, people have bootleg CBS, versions. You can it. sometimes get links. It's it's madness that a massive show that essentially was the television spinoff of Heat. It's amazing. It's an insanely high quality show. It's like a show that's completely out of time. And you go, if, if it was now in this, in our sort of, you know, insanely high quality all across the board streaming landscape. If Robbery Homicide Division came out this year, it would be in the conversation of like the top 10 of the, any year that it came out in, in modern times. Absolutely before its time. And I think maybe putting it, you know, on prime time on CBS was probably not the best move. It, it <laughs> was, a, you know, it's something that, that should have been in the same cable conversation as like the shield or yes, something like that. But, um, but yeah, so, so I think because he had gone through the rigors of the plotting, of that and had spun that out in a very literal way. Uh, in the film Miami Vice, he wanted to, to live inside of the emotions. And I look at the film like both Crockett and Tubbs are a little over the work that they do. And the film is less invested in the nature of the art plot and more invested into the effect of everything on characters. Yes. Now, a lot of people were taken aback by that. They didn't really like that because they have this idea of Miami Vice being this sort of fun, light, cool um, experience. Now, that is, I think, people's prism of memory clouding what Miami Vice actually was. Uh, it was a character-driven show with a lot of pyrrhic victories. Um, and it was a lot of consequence and a lot of cost. And there was a little nihilism in Miami Vice. You know, think about the Bruce Willis episode, No Exit, for instance. Like, yes. that episode has a pretty downturn ending. Um, and uh, I mean, even the pilot. The pilot, you know, end, the pilot ends with the bad guys winning. Like, it's with just the bad like, guys winning, <laughs> yes. right? Like, like, uh, a, uh, when, people was, when people were saying, like, oh, Miami Vice is so sunny and stuff, I'm like, how long ago have you watched it? 
<laughs> that's that's your memory of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like there, there's a there's a scene where they're they're driving in the Ferrari. Well, it's a Corvette with the Ferrari shell, but don't tell anybody. And they're <laughs> they're, they're driving with that. And Crockett has to pull over and call his wife, played by Belinda something or other. I had a big crush on her when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and a feathered hair and everything. Uh, and and he has to call his call his ex-wife to make sure, soon to be ex-wife, to make sure that there was something real there. Because he might get killed. <laughs> like, and and Tug is loading like a sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super. So I think the film is accurate to those emotions, and I like the impressionistic uh, uh, vibes it has. I mean, there are, there are certain things that I think are less successful than others, but it's so rare that anything that is within the action thriller genre brings in the, the, the technique of like, you know, uh, French new ways, yes. you know, and, and the cinema. And I, I, I greatly appreciate the combination of those things and the lyricism of it. Um, and you I know, think and you're, you're, you've got, you as a writer and especially with, you know, your especially with like comic books and comic book story arcs, you you the cool thing about picking up a comic book often, especially when you're doing an established run, I know you've got detective coming up for yourself, but it's like, I love stepping in and just, there's no preamble. And I think that it's not done enough in cinema. And I I like the balsiness of man to just like, and he does it in hate too. Like you're immediately Mm -hmm. thrown in. There's not 25 minutes of, I need to know where this character's from, who this person is, where they live, what they ate this morning. You know, like, I mean, I know that there are those beats, but that's so great about Miami Vice. You literally just dropped in, figure it out. And I, I, the, the, the literacy of the genre, he, he doesn't act like his audience is stupid. He, he acknowledges, well, this is a very literate, um, you know, people who are coming along to see a Miami Vice movie or a cop movie of this kind, they might feel like they're out of place for a moment, but once they sort of start wearing the rhythm and what I'm trying to do, they're going to appreciate it. And I think that it's just not done enough because you can then flex all these other muscles to your point, like stylistically um, and, and focusing on emotions, pivoting the focus. Yeah. So I, 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 I like you as one of those people that saw that immediately in Miami Vice and, uh, and especially in Australia at the time, people were like, Oh, what about Colin Farrell's moustache? I'm like, what movie did you watch? Who cares about his moustache? Like what's going on? Well, you know, it's so in, in writing. Um, one of the things that I always tell new writers is that we do not understand the nature of people from what they say about themselves or what is said about them. We understand the nature of people by observing their behavior. Behavior is character. Yes. Right? So instead of inundating us with exposition, man puts all these little details of human behavior into something. And from that, we can immediately tell the difference. I mean, you can just look at the, the blocking, the mm. character behavior of Wayne Grow and Cerrito uh, inside that semi-cat. Yeah. And you can see who's focused and who's not, right? Like De Niro, you know, walking with the, uh, the EMT guard, you know, and the pace of this walk and the way he's looking around and, not, and all And of not that. touching anything with his hands. And not such, touching anything such, with his hands. The, the, like, one of the best, in, it's, it's in the opening three, I think it's like the opening three and a half minutes. So much business is done with that character. Like, it's unbelievable. It, it's, you just go, yeah, it's, it staggers me even just thinking about it. Behavior, right? And, and it's, 
uh, it's something that I, I strive to do in my own work, even if it's a comic book, you know, I'm not writing for live action, I'm just writing for, for comics. I still try to think about how to manifest characterization inside of behavior mm. so that uh, an audience, a reader, can experience a character more and, and come to understand a character that way. So the characters in Miami Vice, yeah, there's not a lot of exposition given around anyone, but you can understand them from behavior uh, very, very well, you know, and, and uh, like that moment where Crockett looks over the horizon in the middle of shaking down Eddie Marzan's character. Yes. You know, we, we, we see a guy who's look, he's looking for, for something uh, over the hill, you know, something, a little something greater out there. Than, than, than whatever it is, you know, and uh, it's it's those things that I find fascinating. But it requires that one not watch a movie while tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like you have to actually sit and watch the film and pay attention to the film. You know, yeah, you know? Miami Vice was just on that cusp, right? It was just at that time before it was like the battle of screen on screen on screen on screen for everything. It was just sort of it wasn't quite as pervasive, but now it's like. Everyone's yeah, yeah. In and now that I've uh, now that I bring it up more, I'm finding more and more people who respond well to the film. I think, you know, it's there's there's difficulty when you want to do a little bit more inside of the genre, and where people are expecting X and you want to give them X and Y and Z, and yes. sometimes they're not quite ready for all of that. But now we're in a kind of post postmodernism where everything has been deconstructed. We're in the world post True Detective where. You know, yeah, 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 there's a killer. But this is really about the conversation these two men are having in the car. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, we're able to do those sorts of things. And it's trying, to anchor, it's, it's trying to anchor high, high concept intellectualism and no BS, like mm-hmm. on the ground stuff. And the, and, and the wrestle between those two and the energy is the whole, is the whole show. It's the whole, that's yeah. the, whole, the whole concept. So, you know, what I'm telling everyone who's listening is, Give Miami Vice a second chance and find me on Twitter and talk to me about it. <laughs> uh, well, guys, I, I think that that's the perfect way to end this show uh, today. Look, uh, Brian, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Um, thank as, you for having me. This has been fantastic. Well, I've, I've, this has been a, a hell of a lot of fun for me. Um, guys, keep an eye out on everything for Brian um, uh, on Twitter. Um, he is at... Oh, it's Brian Edward Hill. Brian That's my Ed- name. Bri- Brian, Ed- <laughs> Brian Edward Hill, um, and his uh, little note next to his name is Illuminati. Um, and right. you, what you'll see if you, if you like me, are a Michael Mann obsessive, is that people do to, to, to Brian, what they do to me with heat is they just tag him in everything that's ever been written about Miami Vice and we and continue to share and 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 share that love alike but obviously an insanely talented and prolific man sir thank you so much again um guys I've been Blake Howard oneheatminute.com is where you can find us mail at one heat minute um uh so lucky that people like Brian agree to come and uh, give us their time and be generous with the show. We are 114 minutes into Michael Mann's 1995 Chrome Opus. We have a murderer's row lineup continued of amazing guests that are going to talk about every minute of this film leading up to the final 170th episode in the credits. Um, but uh, uh, thank you uh, again, guys, and we'll catch you in another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. <laughs>